Amen. Amen. You can be seated as you do that. If you're going out with Mosaic Kids, K through third, you can follow the folks in the yellow shirts, Miss Antonia waving in the back. The rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four, we'll be looking at verses nine through 12. Romans chapter four, verses nine through 12. All right, here's what I want to talk with you today about. I want to talk with you about signs and symbols. And then before we get into the text, let me just do a little exercise with you just to get the juices flowing. Let me give you some signs or some symbols, and then I want you to tell me. You can talk to me. It's okay. I want you to tell me what these signs and symbols say, what they represent, okay? A red sign on the corner of a road tells us what? Okay. Golden arches tell us what? A swoosh check mark tells us what? An apple with a bite out of it tells us what? Yeah, see, signs and symbols, we live in a world of signs and symbols where they carry weight. We live in a universe made up of signs and symbols. We learn to think and live in light of these symbols. They help us make sense of the world. And today, we are going to look at the signs and symbols of salvation. The signs and symbols of salvation. What are the markers of those who have received grace? Last week, we looked at Father Abraham in Romans chapter 4, and with Paul, we turned our attention to this question, how will God judge us? Will we be cursed by nature, or will we be blessed by grace? And today, as we continue forward in Romans chapter 4, we find out this reality. When God counts us righteous, he marks us with new signs. When God counts us righteous, he marks us with new signs. So we're going to look at this in Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. I'll read it. You can follow along with me. And afterwards, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. And we respond, thanks be to God. You're invited to respond in that way. Let me read Romans 4, beginning in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of those circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now remember again, once again, for the 18th time, who Paul was addressing. He was writing to the church in Rome. It was made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And so this is the dialogue between the circumcised Jewish Christians and the uncircumcised Gentile Christians. Now, you're going to have to stick with me because I know some of you are thinking, am I really about to hear a sermon about circumcision? Yes, it's happening. We're talking about it. This outward symbol of circumcision was a huge stumbling block and point of division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Now, when we begin to dive into this passage, you might find yourself with a question that when you've read the Bible, when you've heard about circumcision before, you've kind of left thinking through, which is, what, why circumcision, you know? Has anybody ever read through the Bible and felt like, hmm, God... You know all things, but this, this seems odd. 
Circumcision seems like a strange, strange thing. And then for it to become such a unique reality that in the church in Rome, the Jewish Christians are kind of wielding their circumcision against the Gentile Christians, you have to kind of wonder, like, why circumcision? What's really going on here? Well, in Genesis 17, God had called Abraham, and he had made a covenant with Abraham. That's Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. Genesis 15, the covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 17, he tells Abraham that he is going to mark Abraham and all of Abraham's descendants with circumcision. But why? Why this marking? Why this reality? And I really resonate with the question because I have to tell you, it's one of those places in Scripture where I find myself asking okay, couldn't there have been a different way to do this? Couldn't there have been a different marker of belonging to God than circumcision? So why circumcision? Well, there's really three reasons. And if you're taking notes, this would be good to write down because these three reasons are in mind for Paul's audience. The first, circumcision was a symbol that demonstrated that life belongs to God. Circumcision was a symbol in the ancient Near East and for Israel that life belongs to God. What was one of the central promises to Abraham? I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you an offspring. I'm going to make you make your descendants many, many. You won't even be able to count them. They'll be like grains of sand on the sea. They'll be like the stars in the heavens. And circumcision was a symbol that the right to fulfill this promise belonged to God and God alone. Right? The placement of circumcision. Okay, now I'm not going to get medical on you here, okay? But you know what I'm talking about. The placement of circumcision was crucial because it was an ever-present reminder that life belongs to God, that the fulfillment of God's great promises to Abraham and his descendants belonged not to Abraham, but to God. So circumcision was a symbol that demonstrated life belongs to God, and the fulfillment of all God's promises would be in God's hands. The second, circumcision was a symbol that sin would have to be covered by blood, that sin would have to be covered by blood, that the shedding of blood would be required for the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. So circumcision was a symbol. From the very first moments of a child's life, circumcision was a symbol that sin required the shedding of blood. That's the second reason why circumcision was used as a symbol. The third, it was a symbol of the promise of an offspring who would come to save the world. That there was a chosen child who was coming, the offspring of Abraham, who would be son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, Son of man. And he would come to make right all that sin had made wrong. And this symbol of circumcision, it was incredibly crucial for Israel's identity. And it's hard for us to really grasp that. But in the ancient world, this circumcision symbol was a way of demarcating Israel as a unique people. In the, in the sight and in the kind of neighborliness with other nations, circumcision was a way of demonstrating that Israel was distinct. They were set apart. And yet Paul's point here is this. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Because when was it counted to Abraham to be righteous? Faith was counted. Was it counted to him before or after circumcision? Before. And why Paul is being emphatic about this is because he wants Israel, he wants the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians to realize this. The righteousness of God came to Abraham by faith and not by any external sign. 
That's what Paul wants them to see. The Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church in Rome are divided. And they are divided because the Jewish Christians are sitting in judgment on the Gentile Christians for three reasons. They're not circumcised. They're not the biological descendants of Abraham. And according to Jewish law, they're not walking in God's word. They're not the recipients of the law and they're not keeping the details of the law. So the Jewish Christians are sitting in judgment on the Gentile Christians. And in this whole chapter, Paul has been saying, hey, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We need righteousness. There's only one way to get righteousness, and it's not how some of you think. Some of you think that you can be made righteous because you are the descendants of Abraham. Some of you think you can be made righteous because of the sign of circumcision. Some of you think you can be made righteous because of your obedience to the law. But it's none of these things. And look, even with Abraham, it wasn't that way because faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, before circumcision. Before circumcision. Paul wants us to know that there is only one way into the love of God, and that is by grace through faith. Because I bet it is easy for the Gentiles to think, okay, if I could just do all the stuff, all the stuff that the Jewish Christians are doing, then God will accept me. It's clear that there is widespread confusion on what was actually involved in being faithful to God. And Paul is working as hard as he can for them to hear this singular message. All that is required to receive God's blessing is faith in God. How does he start here? Is this blessing, what was this blessing? We talked about it last week. What's the blessing that Paul is talking about? Is it hashtag blessed? No. This blessing is distinct. This blessing is to be counted righteous, to have all of your sins removed. It's what the psalmist David says when he says in verses 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So to be blessed is to be forgiven. To be blessed is to be counted righteous by God. To be blessed is to have all of your lawless deeds forgiven, all of your sins covered. That's what it means to receive God's blessing. It means to be declared righteous. And the word that's used for that is justification. To be declared righteous means to be counted blessed by God. To have one's lawless deeds forgiven, to have one's sins covered and shame removed And Paul is telling a divided church, a church divided between Jewish and Gentile Christians, a church where there is confusion on how we are made righteous. He's saying Abraham was made righteous by God's grace through faith before he had done anything, before he received the sign of circumcision. And that is to say to us that all can be made righteous, circumcised and uncircumcised. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, wherever you think you're going, you can be made righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. This is the great leveler. If sin in Romans 3 was the great equalizer, then in Romans chapter 4, we're finding out that for all who have fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of them can be made righteous by grace through faith. That we can be made whole, we can be made righteous, and that neither the Jewish Christians nor the Gentile Christians have a leg up on each other, because Abraham is the father of all through faith, not through circumcision. Now, I have to pause here, because I can't preach this text this week and not draw attention to what's been happening between Israel and Palestine in recent days. I want you to hear me clearly. 
I am not going to give you my thoughts on the best way to think about international relations and the ongoing conflict in the Middle East. That's for someone with a much greater IQ over the details of that conflict. But I do want to talk about what Paul is saying here and how that pertains to thinking through this. Because I've gotten so many questions in the last couple of weeks. I've been surprised, blown away, truly, at how many have questions about what's happening in the Middle East. I mean, we've been talking about Israel. Many of you did the Life of Abraham study this spring. So it makes sense that there's some question over whose side is God on. And that's a question that typically is often asked, I think, in these kinds of crises. It's certainly been asked about the history of the world. And Paul is saying some things here that are crucial for us to understand if we're going to think biblically about what's happening. Israel, the Jewish community, was meant to be distinct among the nations. That's true. They were the original recipients of the law, the seal of circumcision, and the temple. But this was meant to be a blessing to the ingathering of the nations. And from the very first moments that we begin the story of Israel, God, when he calls Abraham, says, I'm going to send you to this place. Why? So that you might be a blessing to the nations. When the temple is finally built in Solomon's reign, when they've taken on the land in the historical books, we find out that the temple is there so that God's name would be pronounced and that the nations might flock to it and gather in it in his presence. You see, Israel's distinctiveness was meant to be a blessing, not a weapon. Their distinctiveness was meant to be a witness, not a weapon. What Paul is saying here and elsewhere in Romans, in no uncertain terms, is a startling honesty for the Jewish Christians. They are not the recipients of a future blessing that is unique to them. They are on the same footing as the Gentile Christians at the church in Rome. Now, there are all sorts of geopolitical and humanitarian reasons to side with the Palestinians or to side with Israel, but there is not a biblical reason to view one as more in keeping with the favor of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are subject to his wrath unless they turn by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. No one, by nature, is more in keeping with the plans and purposes of God, but by grace, anyone can become a child of God. That's what the good news of the gospel is. Romans 9, Paul's going to say, not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. So I'm not saying you can't have a well-informed view of who's right and who's wrong and the ongoing conflict there. I'm merely telling you that if you're going to try to draw a line by nature in terms of who is on whose side, then you're already missing Paul's point here, which is that no one is on God's side by nature. No one is on God's side by ethnicity. No one is on God's side by culture. No one by themselves is in keeping with God. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. The bad news is bad news for everybody. Not just bad news for the people we like or bad news for the people we don't like. And the good news is good news for everybody. That God's grace isn't held back because of where you've come from or your ethnicity or what part or region of a country you live in. And this is important. It's important because this passage here is laying on a foundation that Paul is going to use elsewhere. Because while he's very clear that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus, salvation has always been signed. Salvation has always been signed. Those who have been saved, those who have experienced God's grace, have always been marked. And he's going to tell us about that. So look in verse 11. 
He, speaking of Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now why? Well, Paul tells us the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely, now listen to this, the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, hold on, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what's Paul saying? Is Paul saying circumcision doesn't matter? No. Is Paul saying that circumcision is the end all be all? No. Paul is saying this. Circumcision and obedience did not save Abraham, David, or Israel, and they won't save us. Salvation has always been by grace through faith and God's righteousness, but circumcision and obedience still matter. They still matter. Circumcision and obedience were seals. They were symbols. They were signs. They were what theologians sometimes call boundary markers that Abraham, David, and Israel believed in the one true God and were covered by his righteousness. You see, Israel, like you and I, was saved by unconditional grace through faith in God's righteousness in order that they may be a witness to him in the world. Circumcision and obedience to the law were signs and symbols to set Israel apart, to place Israel in a different place, to mark them as a distinct people in the world, to mark them as witnesses. And guess what? While the law and circumcision have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus, those who have experienced God's salvation, Jew and Gentile alike today, are still to be marked and set apart. But by what? What are we to be marked and set apart by? And for the Jews, it was circumcision. For us in the new covenant, it is baptism. Baptism replaces the symbol and sign of circumcision. It's the way that we are marked and demarcated as a people who belong to God. Baptism is a celebration, but it is a seal. It is not the substance. Baptism celebrates what God has done in our lives. It, it designates us as a new kind of people who have been brought through the waters of judgment and into new life with Christ Jesus. Baptism is a symbol like circumcision was. Our righteousness is not rooted in the symbol, but the symbol tells the story of our righteousness. That's what baptism is. That's what circumcision was intended to be, was a storytelling symbol. It wasn't meant to be the source of righteousness and salvation. And so baptism is a symbol. You know what another symbol is? The Lord's Supper. What we do one time in baptism, we retell weekly in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a weekly reminder. It's a weekly symbol that we are a people who have been brought into the family of God through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is a symbol. It's a seal. It's a designator. It's a boundary marker. Like baptism is to say we are a new people and we have a new first table. And that is the table of the Lord. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols. But what Paul says here, he goes even a little bit further. Because look in verse 12. To make Abraham the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised. Okay, so he's taking the fundamental symbol and seal. He's taking the fundamental boundary marker. And he's saying this is the mere marker. 
This is the most basic. This is 101. Not merely circumcised. He's displacing the significance of circumcision. He's not saying it's worthless. He's not saying the symbol of our salvation is for nothing. He's merely saying it's step one. Because where does he go on here? He goes on to say, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith. You see, baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols. They're boundary markers. They're ways of designating us. But the fundamental marker for the one who belongs to God is not baptism, is not the Lord's Supper, it's obedience. It's obedience. Obedience to God is one of the most significant, most central ways that we are marked as a distinct people, that we are marked as witnesses of God's grace. And it does not save us, but it invites us into walking into the footsteps of faith that Abraham has shown us and that more perfectly Christ has shown us. Was Abraham saved through circumcision? No. Did it matter? Absolutely. Was Abraham saved through his obedience? No. Did it matter? Absolutely. Are we saved through baptism in the Lord's Supper? No. Does it matter? Absolutely. Are we saved by obedience? No. Does it matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, salvation has always been by grace through faith. And it has always led to a symbol, to being marked as God's people as we walk in the footsteps of faith. And this is the movement that Paul is going to make. And you're going to feel it from Romans chapter 5 all the way to Romans chapter 12. Romans 5 to Romans 12, there's this very slow plodding movement where like Paul does throughout the whole letter, he takes three steps forward, he walks two steps back, he retraces where he's been, and then he moves us a little bit more forward. And this movement is the movement from justification to sanctification. This is the movement from God declares us righteous by grace through faith in Jesus, justification to sanctification. God shapes us into righteousness by grace through faithful obedience. This is the difference between justification and sanctification. Both come by grace. Abraham was able to obey God by grace and grace alone. I, you, are able to obey God by grace and grace alone. But the real distinctiveness of justification is that that grace in justification enables us, it frees us to place our faith, our trust, the allegiance of our hands, the affections of our heart, the agreement of our mind into Jesus. And in doing so, God says that we are righteous for good forever. And sanctification, which is by grace and grace alone. And yet in this instance, we take the faith that we have placed in Jesus and we put it into action in our lives through faithful obedience. See, Paul is not saying obedience doesn't matter. He's not saying that the signs and symbols of our salvation are inconsequential. He's merely saying they will be as strong as the foundation that they are standing on. And the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are confused because they think their righteousness rests on a foundation of their works. It doesn't. They stand on a righteousness not their own. What is the work of Christ? And in doing so, they live righteously. 
they live as a marked people. We are to be a people like Abraham, like Israel, who are marked by God, whose very identity, way of life, and bodies are shaped by the presence, purposes, and plans of God. This is what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. It's why they're so crucial. They are visual signs and symbols of the work that God has done in salvation. They are assurances that God and God alone will keep his promises to us, and they mark us as a distinct people. But the law of God in the Old Testament was meant to do this as well. This is why it's so heartbreaking when people see baptism as the end of their discipleship road. It's the beginning of the discipleship road that leads into walking in the footsteps of faith. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are momentary events and reminders that call our attention again and again to the ordinary road of the Christian life, which is faithful obedience standing on the unending righteousness of God. So how will you be marked as a follower of Jesus? How will your life be different than the lives of those around you? As a Christian, God is inviting you to be different than those who have not placed their faith in Jesus. And this invitation by God is not legalism because he's not going to condemn you when you fall short of it. But he's inviting you into a better way. How will your life, what will it mean to work in your job as a Christian, obedient to God? And how will that be different than those who work around you? What will it mean to be a neighbor who follows in the footsteps of the faith in Duck Creek or in Greenwood Hills or in Heights Park in a way that is different from the neighbors on your block who don't know Jesus? What will it mean? What will it look like? This invitation is not an invitation to earn righteous. You never could and you never will. But on a righteous foundation that can never be removed, what will it look like for us to be obedient to the word of God, to be marked and demarcated as a people who proclaim and perform the words of God, that listen to his words, that speak his words, that do his words, that walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham and the faith of Christ. This is where Paul is taking us. Paul is not giving us a high-octane, diesel, grace-driven engine so that we can keep it in park. Paul is laying, he is building a gospel engine stronger than anywhere else you'll find, anywhere in the world. And he's doing it because he wants to set your life in motion. Grace isn't just an opportunity for us to just stay. It's an opportunity for us to enter into the journey of a risky, ambitious, and holy life, of righteous living in a world that will oppose it. Why? Because it's the better way. That's where Paul is taking us, and that's where we'll go in the weeks ahead. Pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your grace and mercy in Christ. We pray that you would bless us as a people who stand on the righteous foundation of Jesus and who walk in your ways forever. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.